and welcome to another episode of A Dash of Science. I'm your host, Chris. Each week, we take a topic from STEM and break it down in a way that everyone can understand and enjoy. So sit back, relax, and enjoy A Dash of Science. This week, we are talking with Cassandra Mekokisalas, a longtime friend and cytogenetic technologist about the intricacies of epigenetics. We get to try and make sure we're doing a good job defining terms, but uh, if you really want a good pre-show rundown, I recommend you listen to the last episode she was on uh, entitled, How Science Gets in Your Genes. We do a great job of breaking down a lot of the terms there, but you should be able to follow along just fine without it, though, so no worries if you want to plow ahead into this week's episode. Uh, One note first, this is the first time I have tried recording through Skype, uh, and I can't say I'm super impressed, but we work with the technology we have, and this is what was available to record this week, unfortunately. But uh, hopefully you won't mind. Uh, But yeah, that's it. Let's get on with the show. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I'm here with Cassandra Mekokisalas. Yes. I think I nailed it. it. Yes. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm good. All right. We've had you on uh, once before, but just in case nobody uh, that's listening now happened to catch that episode, why don't you just tell us kind of a little bit about your background and, and what you do real quick? Uh, so I am a cytogenetic technologist. I take to my lab specifically, we get samples of blood and bone marrow from patients that their doctors think they might have cancer. And we culture those and put them on slides and treat them with various chemicals to um, visualize if maybe there was a deletion in the DNA or if a chunk had moved from one area to another area where it's not supposed to be. That's called a translocation. Um, Mm -hmm. So I get to, um, when I'm not in the lab, which is, you know, a pretty sterile, just regular drop (laughs) that kind of slide making. Um, When I'm not in the lab, I get to look at fluorescent signals and record their patterns and see if they're doing anything weird and that's in fish. Or I get to look at uh, pictures of chromosomes and see if anything has changed that would lead to a cancerous state and then we write up a report and send that to the um the doctor that ordered it and the cool thing there is that uh for a lot of these changes there is a specific drug therapy or a specific treatment model that'll work better for that patient instead of just uh going in and and flying blind so okay yeah it's pretty cool so if is it is it like so you're not only kind of identifying if it's cancer, but like which specific cancer, what mechanisms it's working on so that you can kind of tailor which specific drug treatment would work best for them. Is that accurate? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, oh. There's there's some cancers that we have drugs that are so good, um, uh, specifically CML. Um, they say now you don't die from CML, you die with CML because the drug just keeps it from doing any damage so you still have the dna damage mm-hmm. uh, but the the messed up protein that it's creating because of that is just uh inactivated 
okay. so that it can't, it can't do anything. So that patient doesn't have to go through something terrible like a bone marrow transplant or radiation or chemo because they can just take this pill. They have to take it forever, but they can just take this pill and, and they're fine. Nothing happens. That's really cool. How old of a treatment is that? Is that relatively new or have we had that for a while? Um, we've had it, I mean, in the in the world of <laughs> medicine, we've had it for uh, a bit. I think it's maybe 10 years old, maybe okay. more than that. Yeah. So, so it's not new. Kind of, not new yeah. in the world of medicine. No, uh, not new in the world of medicine at all. <laughs> Uh, and one thing I, I don't want to get too deep into because we did talk about before is just kind of the idea of cancer. Like everybody asks this question, you know, why don't we have a cure for cancer? And we talked about how well there isn't a cancer, right? There's all these different types of cancers that that work differently. So when we're thinking about that, uh, I, I hesitate to be like, give me a solid number. But like how many roughly different uh, forms of cancer are there roughly that you've seen? Or is it kind of is it is it? differentiated by the mechanism that it works and the location in the body or are those kind of grouped together does that make sense yeah that makes sense um yeah so the thing about it is is that there's different types of cancer that behave in different ways um and then each of those can attack different tissues and depending on which tissue it's in kind of changes how you can treat it Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and, and they all have specific names because they're attacking specific tissues. So cancer really just basic down is that your, your DNA is not doing its job, which is to keep the cell functioning in a healthy cooperative way. Mm-hmm. Uh, something went, went wrong and it's gone rogue. And it can be pretty much any form of anything that causes it to either, reproduce uh, unchecked or does this also cover like say producing either too much or a mutated form of a protein or would that be starting to get into like other types of diseases uh as long as so uh like in the case of cml it is actually producing a mutated protein that is um changing the way that another system is regulated and that's what causes the disease state Okay. Of a cancer. So, in a case where it's not a um, like a germline hereditary disease, mm-hmm. yes, can be that either a, an important gene is turned on or off when it shouldn't be, or uh, there's damage, or there's a weird protein and the cell can't function properly without it. Um, there's there's a lot of cases where the because cells go through a normal cycle between, you know, just doing regular cell stuff. And then there's a point where they reproduce. And so they mm-hmm. go through a different set. So in their normal cell cycle, that that's supposed to be most of the time of their existence in cancer. They just keep reproducing. And that's why you get tumors and masses. OK, because the cell doesn't shut down the reproduction part to do the job part and then you're feeding all of these useless things and they're crowding out healthy cells so that's one cancer mechanism um, but it always it doesn't always have to present like that and even in my job uh you can have mds but there can be multiple different mutations that are associated with mds and so how you treat those or the the prognosis um, 
is is different depending on what the change is, but the disease itself is still show, presenting in the same way, but the okay. mechanism is a little different. Am I so going to put you on the spot I, if I ask you what MDS is? Um, it is a it's a myeloid disorder. So okay. the myeloid cells um, are in your bone marrow are mutating, um, and again, depending on the type of DNA change that's causing that, they either are producing like crazy or they're not making enough or they aren't maturing or they aren't dying. Uh, and all of those different things can be happening within one cell type, depending on the, the sprinkling flavor of cancer that you have for that. So to, we can't really cure cancer because it's a really complicated sort of system failure that has the potential to happen in any of our cells in multiple different ways. Okay. So one of, one of the ways that we are kind of starting to really treat some of the cancer and, and, or potential ways that we could, and, and not even just cancer, but other types of, of, of gene, I guess, based diseases, right? Uh, genetic diseases would probably be the proper scientific way to say that, uh, is through basically finding some way to turn on or turn off these things that are, you know, on or off incorrectly, correct? Yes. And that is basically, in a nutshell, what epigenetics is. Awesome. It's like I planned that. <laughs> <laughs> so epigenetics, uh, how, I guess, so that is essentially, we kind of, that's a really simplified version of that. Can you go into any more detail on on, on that? Like, may, are there other aspects of, of how you utilize that or... Yeah, so epigenetics is, is personally, to me, it's very interesting. Um, when I was in college, we watched a video about epigenetics in my just general genetics class, and I was immediately fascinated with it. Um, but you, it's important, I think, to understand some more, not as basic as the last time we went into it, but still some pretty basic um, structural things about the way that DNA is packaged and the way that it functions in order mm -hmm. to understand how epigenetics really works. So okay. uh, let, me, let, me, let me see if I can if I can remember and you tell me if I'm wrong, okay? okay. Uh, because yeah. this is 100% off of my brain, so nobody listened to this part. I could be way off. Uh, so we have our cells, and our cells, uh, you know, we I think everybody should have a basic understanding of cells. Um, but within that, we've got DNA that's mostly within the nucleus and the uh, mitochondria. Uh, and then our DNA is basically, we've got the base pair, are they called nucleotide bases? Is that right? Yes. All right, and I know they're A, C, G, T, and I know A goes to T, and I go that C goes to G, but I don't remember what the actual names of those are, so you can fill in those there. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, adenine, guanine, thymine, and cytosine. Excellent, exactly what I, you're right, good job. Uh, this is a Thank test you, you passed. Uh, <laughs> so essentially- All around. <laughs> yes, so certain numbers of these of these bases uh, together form a sequence, and these sequences can be various lengths, but essentially there are known sets of sequences, and these are genes, correct? Yes. All right, and so some genes can be really long, some genes can be really short. Uh, okay. Now, if I remember correctly, um, let's see, chromosomes, let me think, I, I remember 
remember that there's like 23, so 46 total, right? With mm. both sides chromosomes. Mm-hmm. And I remember like the 23rd one is a sex chromosome. Uh, and I feel like they had little spindles on them. I, I'm losing it. All right, you take over. <laughs> it's pretty good. It's pretty good. It went, it went off the rails. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, going back to the base pairs and what you were saying, the certain sequences and the certain repeats, and that's what genes are. So that's uh, how our cells store their their information, how to do their job whatever it is mm-hmm. when they need to do something with that information because they're not just sitting there our cells are growing and reproducing and doing cell stuff you know having cell parties i don't know i'm not a cell when they need to do something they uh go to those genes and the dna code and make a copy from that because uh, you can't just cut DNA out and carry it around and do stuff with it. That would be really dangerous. So you want to make a copy, like a blueprint from a master, you know, plan. Um, that's called RNA, and that gets delivered to another mechanism, and that's used to make protein. And then okay. there's more protein editing that can happen later and, and other stuff, but that's not relevant here. Um, oh. And proteins are pretty much how like that's the method in which our bodies are actually performing things. Is that accurate? Like on that level, like the DNA is what proteins are, are, are specifically made. And then those proteins are how we are transferring, I don't know, information or, uh, I guess, I don't know. How would you put that? So proteins are essential for every function more or less in our body. Mm -hmm. And what, what protein codes the cell is making is how our body communicates um, as kind of a superstructure. So hormones, the release, the production of hormones is controlled by DNA. And then the release of the hormones has to do with another signal coming in and telling the hormone storing cells, hey, we need some of that. Let's, let's rip. Uh, so you you have to have these proteins working properly because protein structure is also important and delicate. It can easily get messed up. So those proteins are what allow our cells to function and to form these complicated structures. Okay. And that's actually the the central dogma of genetics is DNA to RNA to protein. That's like as basic as we can get it. <laughs> <laughs> and when you're when you're uh, making these copies and and messing with them, are you? Uh, nope, never mind. Go with what you're going. Uh, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> That's what the edit button is for. Yep, they will be editing that part out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, DNA is extraordinarily long to fit all of these genes and if you think about how complicated humans are we have to have code for fingernails and skin and eyes and intestinal lining and brain cells lots of stuff so it's it's big it takes up a lot of space relatively in the cell Mm -hmm. and so even though the the dna helix is a good way to store the information if you just have strings of dna all over the place it's 
very inefficient. It's going to get tangled up. You're not going to know where anything is. The tangles will break. Um, mm-hmm. The cell will try to fix those breaks. And it might put them back together properly, but probably not because it's just going to attach it to any old broken end. So the cell will eventually just <laughs> die from lack of function or it will go, oh, I'm, I'm a mess and it'll self-destruct. So you have to have a way to store the DNA that's not going to ruin the cell. Okay. So the DNA is wrapped around um, histone proteins and it binds to these histone proteins. And in every visualization video I've ever seen, they always kind of look like wheels of cheese. So you you assume that's naturally what they look like then. Right. Yeah. I mean, who am I to argue with the the histone protein, the 3D image guy? I, you know, who am I? And these uh, are like uh, visual, actually seeing these, these things are small enough, like uh, you can't see these with a microscope, correct? Not uh, with a standard microscope. Um, You can visualize. So after they wrap around these proteins, Mm-hmm. Um, they do look kind of like a string of beads. And so you can see that that's enough that you can visualize that in the cell. Okay. Um, but we've also pure, uh, done like a protein purification on the histone proteins and uh, analyzed them. And we can restructure the, the shape of the protein. Um, there's a whole, it's very hard and there's a whole lot of rules and math that goes with it. But we do know that they're kind of barrel shaped. Okay. So, um, that's why I just think of wheels of cheese. You know, it's <laughs> funny because I'm like, oh, you're doing all these things. And you don't really have a hundred percent idea of what these things, you know, really look like. And I was going to make fun of you, but then I'm thinking, you know, in physics, we don't really know where electrons are. We're just like, it's somewhere in this area and that's good enough for us. So I guess I can't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> you know where it is or how fast it's going. Yes. <laughs> we've got the DNA wrapped around tiny cheese wheels and uh, that (laughs) so then those DNA histone complexes wrap around even more and they come down to a 30 nanometer fiber 30 30, uh, nanometers diameter so it's tiny this is heterochromatin and this is when this is how it's usually sitting in the cells um, when the cell goes through reproduction and it forms chromosomes, it doesn't really change its structure that much. It just uh, supercoils and tightens everything up even more to try and protect it during that sort of. Um, so it's just like more dense. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't unwind from the histones. It doesn't change the structure of the histone uh, stacks, the the nanometer fiber. They just all kind of coil together and get packaged up into the chromosome so that they're safe while they separate. Okay. So so chromosomes are are interesting and they're helpful for visualizing these issues, um, which is what I look at. But for for the cell itself, it's most useful to have the DNA in this uh, multiple histone wheel complex, which is called heterochromatin. Okay. Um, so again, just real basic understanding. It's real basic. This is uh, first first week of genetics uh, freshman year, right? 
Right, pretty much. <laughs> still all of the cool stuff and none of the like brain scratching crazy stuff. Yes. <laughs> so once you have the DNA all packaged up, it's safe from getting damaged, but the problem that we've created is now we can't get to some of it because it's wrapped around these histone proteins and then they're all stacked up together. So like I said, with when it forms chromosomes, it tightens up. It can also loosen a little bit and can move things around and kind of slide the DNA along the histone proteins to activate the genes, okay. which is important because we need to be able to get to all of our genes. So uh, when you say activate the genes, do you mean like as in to permanently turn them on? Or what, what, does, it, what does it mean to activate a gene in, in this regard? Okay, so the that's a really good question. The thank you. <laughs> um, so in epigenetics, what you're looking at is specifically the changes that are happening to the DNA that don't change the code. Okay. Right. So sometimes that can just be um, turning a gene on or off temporarily. Or it can be turning multiple genes on or off, um, or it can turn a gene on or off permanently. Um, so, if again we go back to the fact that we have skin tissue and you know liver tissue and white blood cells and hair and all these different things, and they all have the same code in them, mm -hmm. we need to be able to edit through that and pick out what we want to express otherwise we would just be a big lump of goo <laughs> <laughs> which nobody likes nobody wants that <laughs> nobody wants that it's hard to move around um and really if you epigenetics is really fascinating in uh human fetal development uh because there's some genes that are turned on from the father's cells and some that are turned on from the mother's cells and so in order for a fetus to develop properly from a single cell organism, it has to turn on and off a lot of genes in a lot of very complicated cascades. Um, and so we have genes that when the, the fetus is developing, they will have gills and it will have a tail. Did you say gills? Gills. Yeah, we have gills. That's a normal thing or just sometimes? Nope, that's a normal thing. There is a point in fetal development where we have uh, webbed hands and feet we have um, a nicotating membrane, which is like the, the extra eyelid that cats and birds have. Um, really? I think I already said gills. And we have a tail. Yeah, and um, the tail and webbed fingers are the only ones. I, and I only knew webbed fingers because I know sometimes something happens where you're born and you still have the webbed fingers. Right. Uh, but has is anybody ever born where the gills stick around that you are aware of? I don't. I don't know of any. I would think probably not because that has to do with uh, the respiratory system, system mm -hmm. which is critical. I would imagine that uh, the fetus would spontaneously abort if the gills didn't um, okay. seal properly because then there would be no way for anything to get into the lungs. So as all genetic conversations generally lead to where there's no Aquaman coming out of this is what you're saying. Not, <laughs> not in 
anytime soon. I mean, well, there's no there's no pressure for an Aquaman. Right. This is true. There's no no selection pressure. Yeah, I was just hoping that one would be born, and then everybody would think that 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 particular person was really cool, and so they would reproduce more, right? And then pass that on, and that it's right. like sexual pressure. That happens. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, they think that uh, there's some evidence that the blue eyes came from one person who had the mutation. But for whatever reason, that mutation is also co-expressed with high fertility. Yeah, so, I uh, yeah. randomly to throw this out there. I read this. I think I it was some low percentage. But I think it was like nine percent of the population had blue eyes. And I had no idea because I feel like everybody has blue eyes everywhere I look. Well, that's because we live in the U.S. That could be. <laughs> there might be something to that. <laughs> Anyways, back to what you're saying. <laughs> you and your logic. Hey everyone, this is Toph, host of Gravity Beard, a podcast featuring interviews and discussions on a wide range of topics. In each episode, I'll either interview a special guest, or we'll convene our typical Algonquin roundtable of brilliant minds. Occasionally, we'll even be joined by the host of one of your other favorite podcasts. Then every other week, my buddy Adam stops by for an installment of This Week Today. Whatever we do each week, we promise you'll be entertained. You can find Gravity Beard on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else quality podcasts are sold. And you can always find us and other indie pods in the Underdog Podcast community on Facebook. We're also a member of the Podfix Network. Come check us out. Gravity Beard. It's what your ears will want to be listening to. Hey guys, you know what goes great after learning science? Playing awesome tabletop games. And nothing goes better with a great tabletop game than great dice. So if you're looking for a new set of gaming dice, check out AdventureDice.ca and use the code QUARK for 10% off your purchase. Let's get back to hearing about epigenetics with Cassandra. Um, so... Right, so we need we need our genes to be on or off at the proper time. Otherwise, we do end up with webbed hands, or you know, people are born with vestigial tails, mm-hmm. uh, and that's because the genes to separate the finger webbing and to reabsorb the tail we don't need didn't get turned on properly. They're still in there in a lot of cases. They had the gene; it just decided to take the day off. I don't know. So. Another example that happens after fetal development would be puberty. Because um, mm-hmm. we don't have any of those hormones in those volumes uh, anywhere before puberty. And then there's a certain age range, age range that on average humans go through puberty. Mm-hmm. And then it finally ends. Life gets much, much better. But the cells always had that code. They just never had to use it. And then at some point, the environmental signals were, hey, it's time for puberty. They all busted out the code, made the hormones, ruined your life, and then turned off. Puberty is over. And that happens to most people. And it's a normal process. (laughs) Even though we all feel like it's the end of the world at the time. (laughs) We're all dying and it's the worst. And no one has ever experienced such pain. So I'm sure there's some sort of genetic disease in which that doesn't shut off or shut off all the way or shut off soon enough. And I think that's where like a lot of the uh, growth disorders 
come from and a lot of like the testosterone disorders and stuff like that. It's interesting to think that like literally every aspect of the development of the human body comes back to some combination of genes being turned on or off and that accidentally, you know, messing up on either side on or off on a, a handful of genes can just ruin everything. Yep. Yep. Another thing I just remembered, um, in utero, fetuses have a period of time where they are extremely hairy. They are what? covered, covered no, in hair. No, you're making that up. I'm not. I'm not. Sometimes they're born. It it eventually comes, it falls off and is like absorbed by the uterus. Gross, by the way. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> sometimes it doesn't come off right away and they're actually born still pretty hairy. Like, you know, when babies... Have you ever seen hairy babies? I've seen like a full head of hair, but I can't honestly recall. And keep in mind, like I, I worked in a hospital for a while where I would go to like, you know, where babies are being born and draw <laughs> blood. I don't think I've ever seen like a completely hairy baby. This must be yeah. rare. <laughs> it's, it's pretty rare. It's pretty rare. But there is a point where we are covered in hair. Huh. And that must that go back up. to that whole primate ancestry Thing, yep. right like they're, yep. that's interesting but in the tail too probably yep uh, and the gills and the webs come from you know the ancestor even further back some sort of semi-aquatic or aquatic. it's interesting that those things not only are they still there but they still seem to be part of the development of the fetus like there's i mean now because genes and evolution are kind of weird it's never this is the best way it's always this is the good enough way so it makes me wonder is there an actual like, is there a benefit to those things developing within the womb, or is it just because it doesn't hinder anything, and then they, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. It's weird. Anyways, <laughs> my mind's going a million different directions right now. <laughs> That's actually a really, a really good question, um, because I think it sort of speaks to um, you, the way that most people think about evolution is not like you said, where it's just kind of like, this is good enough. A lot of people think of evolution being driven or directed or like trying to get to the best. So you also have to think about the fact that evolution wants to do the most good for the least amount of resources. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't make sense from an evolutionary standpoint and from a resource conservation standpoint to completely change the genes for webbed digits because Mm -hmm. the the, you know the hand formation with digits with or without webbing is all over the place in right natural world so it doesn't make sense to just be like well we just will make it without the webbing that's already working great just get rid of the webbing afterwards that's one quick change so that's a lot easier than starting the whole thing over plus when you have a webbing it allows more lateral uh, temporary like capillaries to form. And so you get faster development uh, and better tissue. Yeah. So there's, there is some. See, this is why I have experts on the show. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I can't, I can never remember the quote, but uh, wasn't it uh, wisdom is knowing what you definitely don't know something along those. Oh man. I'm, I'm a wise, wise man. (laughs) philosophy though so don't trust it too much oh that's true (laughs) (laughs) we won't uh, harp on that too much philosophy is really great when you don't have a textbook (laughs) yeah 
it's really great for uh, drinking around a campfire and mm-hmm. talking about the big things. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there aren't a bunch of philosophers uh, standing around doing uh, epigenetics. <laughs> I mean, not a bunch, no. <laughs> so, uh, oh, man, I kind of lost my train of thought here, but right, so we're talking about, <laughs> no, that's okay. We're just kind of talking about epigenetics and uh, the changes that are made. So, those obviously can't be happening randomly. Mm-hmm. There is some sort of progression and order. And they are being turned on and off at different times or permanently. So the way that that happens is through a process like DNA methylation. And as far as the basic stuff goes, it's really straightforward. A methyl group attaches to the DNA and then that changes. It doesn't insert itself into the DNA. It just attaches to uh, the outside backbone that we don't use for any coding it's just the the edge structure of the double helix so this, this is not where like the the sugar or the uh is it a phosphate yeah it's not it's not where those are connecting between this is on the outside yes exactly okay exactly it's off on the the edges but because it is a different molecule it has a slightly different charge to sort of touch on ochem for a second and then run um it can change um the winding of the dna depending on uh what is nearby or it can turn the dna off by sitting on a promoter region or by just getting in the way of a uh, weakly associated promoter region so that but all it's doing is just kind of messing with the way that the code is being expressed, but it doesn't change the DNA. Okay. So when you say change the way that it's being expressed, so that is like, it's called expression, right? That's the same thing you're talking about. And these are the different ways that the same gene can look, or uh, maybe look's not a great word for it, but uh, is that essentially what you're talking about? Yes. So... When I say expression, you can also think of activation. It just means that the DNA is available to be used and is being used to make RNA to make protein. Okay. That's when a gene is expressed, it means that it's active and that it's making protein. Okay, got it. And then to kind of separate that from uh, alleles, I believe is how you pronounce that. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that is that is just a different, uh, slightly different way that that same gene can be sequenced. Like in a, is that correct? Yes. So okay. alleles are different, slightly different versions of the same gene. And then, okay, I just I like to clarify the difference between alleles and expression. So alleles is an actual physical change in the way that it is structured a little bit, whereas expression is just whether or not it's activated. Well, um, alleles are the name for a matching pair of genes that occur on either chromosome. Oh, okay. Right. So, I, so a mutation would be a change in the actual DNA sequence is the term usually used for that. Is there's been, And there's a lot of different types of mutations. If you change a base pair out or if it gets scooched down a little bit, 
or if you just take a chunk out. So those are all called mutations and there's subcategories, but. All right, um, cool. Just making sure I'm tracking. <laughs> yeah. So DNA methylation and uh, there's other mechanisms like it, but I'm just going to stick with methylation because it's the easiest one to That's say. Fine. That's fine. That's <laughs> fine. We'll, we'll keep it simple. Right. So in, in DNA methylation, it's not doing anything to the actual code, like in the case of a mutation. Mm -hmm. So that kind of becomes really interesting when you think about uh, there are some forms of cancer where there's nothing wrong with the DNA code. So if you were to do sequencing on them or uh, molecular testing on them, everything would be fine, but they're sick. And what is actually happening is that a methyl group or another modifying group has turned a gene on or off. Um, it happens a lot actually where we have a lot of tumor suppressor genes and DNA repair genes, which is important. And mm -hmm. methylation can turn those off. They're still there or they still work. They're just not getting used. So is this a is this a normal mechanism that's useful for something that just is kind of doing it to the wrong things, or is this completely shouldn't happen at all in normal healthy genes? No, that's uh, the so it should happen. We do need DNA methylation, but okay, it, sometimes it gets put on the wrong spot and turns off a gene that we need, and so that can lead to disease states like cancer because if you don't have your tumor suppressor genes on and your DNA repair genes on, then you won't get a cancer like CML or MDS where it's very clearly defined and there's treatments for it because it's not that complicated. Okay. You'll just get a tumor made up of cells that have just gone completely wild. They're breaking all the time. Things are moving around everywhere and they're just eating up all of the resources they can. We get, uh, at my, you're, you mentioned earlier the chromosome numbers. You're supposed to have 23 pairs, 46 chromosomes. I've done cases with 50 chromosomes, 78 chromosomes, 89 chromosomes, and they're all mutated and they're all weird. Because, oh, wow. Yeah, so something happened in the really fundamental sort of cell police force um, that those tumor suppressor and DNA repair genes are gone. And so the cancer isn't following any sort of normal progression because all it is is just a, a cell that got so damaged that instead of dying went like it should, it went crazy and made a tumor. And those are usually very hard to treat because there's nothing to target. It's, it's, we hit, you just have to get rid of all of it. That's where just removing the tumor so that you hope that you remove the specific cells that have this damage are also removed? Yes. And then in really aggressive cases, you would follow up with radiation and maybe okay. even because okay. you have to kill all of them right. or they'll come back. Wow, that's so crazy. It's interesting like because even in even with our last conversation that we had and stuff that I've just come across over my own research and whatnot, I still I, I still learn things from these from these conversations. Like just my understanding for the longest time of cancer was just that it was any form of 
mutation that just caused reproduction, uh, unchecked reproduction. And it, it's more complicated than that. And there's other things besides that. So I don't know. It's cool. Anyways, <laughs> it's <laughs> no, cool. And it's sad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's unfortunate, but again, there's, there are, I mean, we know the names of specific genes that are important for tumor suppression. And so we can look for that gene. And if it's not there, we can say, okay, you definitely have to treat more aggressively because the cell itself isn't helping. So even in the cases where, again, not in the case where it's just gone completely, um, just busted up all over the place and hardly recognizable sometimes. We have a classification um, called marker cells. It's used inside of genetics, ISDN, to say, uh, or sorry, marker chromosomes, say, I don't Mm -hmm. know what that is. It's definitely a chromosome, but I have no idea what's in it or where it came from or where it should go. (laughs) It's just nonsense to me. So in cases like that, you're going to have to just go really, really aggressive because the cell has just gone completely rogue. There's no there's no telling what it's going to do so you just have to kill all of it so the the tumor suppression genes you're talking about do they just go and they activate the self-destruct of the 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 bad cells so to speak or how does that work so there are some uh tumor suppressor genes that do activate apoptosis which is the self the self-destruct where the cell uh just dies and that's a normal thing that happens as they age mm-hmm. uh, there's a point where cells have a lifespan and they die and they're replaced by new cells. So that's why we need these uh, DNA repair things because we have to have our cells go through cell cycles and reproduce right. because otherwise, we, you know, every time you skinned your knee, you wouldn't have skin anymore. So <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a double-edged sword. We need to be able to copy our DNA, but when you copy something, you're, going to make an error and so we have to have these things to repair that error Mm -hmm. so when things go bad then you lose uh the cell's ability to go through apoptosis or some tumor suppressor gene will uh their function is to keep certain things not turned off but turned down to low like they produce a protein that preferentially binds to a gene and keeps it turned off most of the time, except for when it's really necessary and a whole bunch of other conditions change. So I never realized that. I thought it was a, I mean, I guess it makes sense that you can turn it on and off, you know, as you need it. But the idea of like, you turned it down to low, which is just only turning it on once in a while. I never, I never, like thought of that as an option i thought it was like you know turned off or you know it's on now so the fact that we are turning them on and off as needed is kind of novel yeah it's it's really fascinating stuff we can also turn them up to high you can there are genes that code for um, promoters to go sit on promoter regions and really recruit um things to read the gene and make rna transcripts just over and over and over again in the case of you know maybe you have some sort of major cellular damage and you need to make new tissues you're just going to turn everything up to 10 mm-hmm. you know so you can stop bleeding uh, <laughs> but then afterwards you have to turn it down and that's 
part of the mechanism why scar tissue forms is because it's going so fast to try and repair the hole that it doesn't actually structure itself properly. And that's why scar tissue is so different from the rest of your skin. Oh, that's Visually. interesting. I didn't know that either. <laughs> I'm full of fun facts. <laughs> Thank you for teaching me all of the things. <laughs> so let me ask you this question. We've got uh, like 20,000 genes, I think, somewhere around there, 20, 25,000 genes. And one thing that I've always thought was interesting, like when we talk about things like CRISPR, things like that, we talk about doing any form of gene editing, it's interesting because we always think of like, you know, this is the gene that does this thing. But in actuality, like the genes can and often do like control numerous things. And sometimes they're not even like related things, right? Right. It's so, very dynamic. So when you're doing any form of the ep epigenetic, like when you're turning on or off things, like because it's not ethical to just take a human and be like, okay, let's go gene one off. What does this do, right? <laughs> <laughs> so how how like what's the process of figuring that out in an ethical way? Well, so if there is a since epigenetics, I think was. I think the term was coined in the 40s, so it's pretty new still, uh, and especially the, the tools and the techniques that you need to track DNA methylation and protein winding are pretty modern as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but in a case where there had been maybe a deletion in a gene, we would be able to see what happens when that gene doesn't work. And also, just because we can't do it in people, doesn't mean we can't do it in mice. Ah. And half, since, half of the internet just got mad at you. I know, I know. <laughs> and I, I definitely understand the ethical uh, problems with animal testing, but for the purpose of explaining how this works, I have to talk about animal testing because right. it is such a foundational part of how we understand DNA. And it, and it is what happens. It is what is done. So, I mean, it's... Right. So, ethical issues aside, which are valid, and, you know, ideally, we wouldn't need to use animals. Mm -hmm. um, the be, Just because it's, again, like, it's more expensive. It's not good for the animals. It's more difficult. Um there's unnecessary because even the best animal experimenters like the, the animal is undergoing some sort of unnatural sure. process. So ideally, we just wouldn't have to do any of that and we wouldn't have to worry about it. And all the mice could just be mice. If people would just get over the idea of partial clones, then we would be fine. Right. No, <laughs> right. Animal testing is a hot spot, and now you're going into cloning. <laughs> <laughs> Science is really uh, interesting and can move really fast if you just get rid of this pesky idea of ethics, right? <laughs> right, right, exactly. That's why there was uh, the moratorium on the CRISPR in human editing, because scientists, especially geneticists, have in the past and continue to sometimes just agree as a group we shouldn't. We shouldn't right. do this. And, and it's good because I imagine it's really easy to remove the human aspect of something when you're looking through a microscope or you're doing, you know, math on a piece of paper and there's not a human in front of you that you're looking at. Right. Exactly. Like, exactly. Uh, we've had I mean, I, I work with 
samples from patients that either have cancer or are worried they have cancer every day. And I just, you know, I put my headphones in and I listen to my music and I do my analysis and then I go home and I'm fine at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. It's for me, it's, it's just chromosomes. I have, you know, I see the patient name and the identifying numbers and I do all the comparison I have to do, but I don't remember their names. Right. You, you yeah. have to, you have to compartmentalize like that or there's no way people could do this work. Right. Like, right. Well, you know, and emotional mess. Exactly. I mean, and that's the sort of the, um, it makes it easier than somebody like, like a nurse or an oncologist who's actually working with the patient and is having to tell them, you know, the results that I found that's emotionally much more difficult. So I'm, I'm lucky to have that separation. Mm-hmm. So like you're saying, doing an experiment on a person who can react and respond is going to be more difficult than what we're at now, where we're doing experiments on people that are still just cells. Right. You know, you, you do have that danger of slipping into less and less ethical things. And it gets, you know, you get all the movie Gattaca happens. (laughs) The go-to movie for this discussion. (laughs) Yep, the go-to movie. Yep. You would be surprised how many people ask me if I've seen Gattaca. (laughs) What's that? What's that movie? I know. know. Oh, you're a geneticist? Have you seen Gattaca? Yes. Have you seen this movie from the 90s? (laughs) Right. about this thing you're interested in no no tell me more (laughs) (laughs) i'm trying to think of like an equivalent like (laughs) uh, have you heard of nasa i'm like no what's that place what do they do (laughs) do you know who yuri gregarin is like yes (laughs) so again we to go (laughs) off the rails again to go all the way back to uh your question about how we would study epigenetics without just you know, you can't ethically just turn things on and off in people. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I was saying, there's the, uh, you can have a history of maybe a genetic mutation or a deletion that shows what happens when the gene is missing, which is the same as it being off. Mm-hmm. Or you can perform it in mice. Uh, they had mice that were fed, that had a uh, disorder where they became very big and obese because they had selectively turned off uh it was a satiation response in the mice so they just ate and ate and ate and they never felt full when oh, they so pray, there's even just like the feeling full thing is like that's crazy you would think yeah. that would just be you know because it's a physical thing right in your body but that's a, a thing you can turn off that's crazy Yes, there are two hormones that control feelings of hunger and feelings of uh, satiety. And if there are problems or imbalances with those, you will feel hungry even when you are full of food. Or you won't feel hungry even though you haven't eaten in two days. That's weird. You'll that blows my mind. I'm All right, you'll anyways. Feel <laughs> you'll feel the other effects of having overeaten, you know, stomach pain and uh, nausea and sweating or have not eaten, you know, weakness, shaking, uh, but you won't feel the actual hunger or full signal. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, it's, it's really interesting. There can just be a lot, 
DNA is fascinating. I love it so much. So, but to go back to the <laughs> <laughs> they did not feel satisfied when they ate. And so they would just get hugely fat. Uh, and so then they bred those mice and gave them a diet that was rich in methyl groups to help turn off genes. And mm-hmm. their babies were all born normal and had normal hunger and satiety responses. If they bred the mice without the special food, their babies all came out with the satiety problem. So the the diet was given to the parent uh, mice. Yes, the, the fat parent bred. mice. That blows my mind. That goes against everything that I ever thought about, like how gene issues work, right? Because uh, I did not think that there was a method of of introducing a chemical into your body uh, after you are an adult to modify genes in such a way that that modification would pass on to offspring. But essentially, yeah. that's what you're saying they did. Yes. It is called a transgenerational epigenetic uh, inheritance. Oh, I just learned something new again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I got to go back through and think about all this now. I think I have to go edit some of my uh, observations of a a previous show that we did. We're we're starting to do these shows where we do on uh, sci-fi movies and stuff. And that was one of the things that came up is they were injecting themselves with a medicine to adapt to something in hopes that it would spread i'm like i don't think that that's how it works but apparently you can do that (laughs) it's got some basis um yeah no i i totally get what you're saying though a friend of mine do you remember liz uh yeah yes i think so yeah liz and i um had a night when after splice came out you remember that god-awful movie after splice came out and we just got really drunk and watched Splice because we were both <laughs> genetics majors. And we were just like yelling at the TV and like throwing napkins at it. Like, that's not how it works. <laughs> it, was, it was a good time. It was a good time. <laughs> yeah, it just hadn't uh, advanced long enough for it to work like uh, movie magic. <laughs> right. <laughs> but so transgenerational epigenetic inheritance is really cool. Um, There was, so there's an example of, there was a famine, a Dutch famine in 1944. And it went from 44 to 45. It was that one year, but it was really bad. Babies that were born during that time were smaller, which makes sense because it was a famine. Uh, (laughs) You know, I would, yeah, smaller babies, not as much food. But the much smaller baby size persisted for two generations interesting so not now this seems like it might be kind of related to the idea and i don't know if this is true it's something i read kind of in a a cursory way that the uh the i guess how common c-sections are in the states has led to larger babies being born right right seems like kind of the same idea there i guess yeah um so smaller women are able to have larger babies because we can just take their guts out and flop it out on the table and then pull the baby out and flop all the guts back in and sew them up. Um, So in the past, those women and that baby probably would have died. Mm -hmm. It was just childbirth was a way to die if you were a woman. It was a really good chance. That's how you were going out. 
It's so, really amazing. I mean, that really goes to show that, like, uh, the progression of, of the species and, and evolution, all this stuff is real. Everything's about sex. Doesn't matter yeah. what happens. As long as you can make it to have sex and, and, and have a baby, then oh, yeah. you've done your part. <laughs> That's why we have a handful of diseases that will end up being fatal in childhood and tons of diseases that show up after you're sexually mature. <laughs> oh, that makes sense, yeah. Those can all sit and wait in the background and not do anything until you're older because it doesn't matter then. You've already reproduced. So there was mm. no selective pressure to get rid of that early. Humans yeah. are messed up physically. <laughs> like the, the idea of, of humans biologically and the idea of humans, uh, I guess, psychologically don't necessarily... Uh, form in, in a good cohesion <laughs> <laughs> well again you got to remember it it builds from a foundation so initially we were probably some sort of semi-amphibious thing running around and then eventually mammals and then mm-hmm. ape-like creatures and then people 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 so as you go through the brain structure they get more and more complicated which means they're right. newer and newer and they're me- newer and newer and they're messier and messier um so yeah you get the we get psychological issues where other animals don't have necessarily the the breadth and scope of issues that people have Mm -hmm. you know what i mean as far as psychological issues um so yeah we're we're weird complicated sort of slapped together animals uh that really are big thing is that we have this FOXP2 mutation that allows us to speak to each other. We have mm-hmm. thumbs and uh, we like to mess with stuff. <laughs> that curiosity <laughs> factor, yes. <that's>, <laughs> what's <laughs> that? I should touch it. <laughs> what's over there? Well, now what's over there? You know, what if I hit this with this rock? And we see some of that in, you know, rudimentary tool building in like apes and monkeys and um, dolphins, even octopus, like there's there's rudimentary tools, but nobody has, you know, no, nothing else has a Skype call to talk about epigenetics on this mm-hmm. planet. So right, that's true. Right, and it's so, funny yeah. that we think about all the stuff that humans did to get there, but like when you think of like uh, what is it called? I think it's called a a firehawk. I think it is. It's a bird that'll essentially if it finds a fire, it'll pick up like a stick that's on fire and it'll bring it to a part that's not on fire and drop it to run all of the prey out so it can eat it. Like that's uh, an advanced tool for animals. And I'm amazed that that's happening as I'm talking to you over Skype. <laughs> right. Right. So it's it's easy to get jaded to our accomplishments and how crazy the the scope of what we know about the universe, despite the fact that we're really just naked apes you know yeah. <laughs> it's, it's easy to not be amazed by the little things is there uh is there anything else that uh, you wanted to finish up and i promise not to interrupt you as we head towards the uh, end of time <laughs> no, uh, yeah so speaking along with the psychological effects that we we're we were talking about just now uh a really good example of how epigenetics can affect that is if you have so you have two rat mothers, and you have one rat mother, which is a really good rat mother, and takes good care of her babies, and she keeps them warm, and she's got a nice nest, and she licks them and makes little noises. And you have another rat mother that kind of just leaves her babies in the nest and feeds them if she has to and spends most of her time doing other stuff. Mm-hmm. 
So good rat mothers, her pups will grow up to just be like normal, functional, everyday rats. Bad rat mother, her pups will grow up to be extremely anxious and scared of pretty much everything. They don't want to interact with other rats, which is not normal. Rats are very social. Everything mm-hmm. speaks them. They're always afraid of the handlers. But, well, but the moms were normal. One of them was just a bad mom. So if you take, <laughs> but if you take a pup from a bad mom rat and you put it with a good mom rat, it will grow up to be a normal, well-adjusted rat. And all of that is happening while it's still, because they're born blind and they can't mm-hmm. hear. So all of that sort of um, the the care that the good rat mom gives them produces physical effects, which creates hormone cascades and creates pathways in the brain. And so the rat grows up being able to rely on this other rat and feeling safe and warm and happy. And so then when it grows up, it becomes an adult rat that relies on other rats and likes to hang out with them and groom because that's normal. If you take one of good mom rats, babies, and give it to bad mom rat, it will grow up as an anxious rat. So the rat behavior had nothing to do with the actual DNA code. It had to do with how the environment changed the epigenetics and how the genes were expressed and how it developed. So for me, that was kind of just that concept was sort of the the final thing that just made me really fall in love with genetics and epigenetics because we can have so much change happen to us just because of our environment, because it's not a hard and fast rule that your DNA is your code and that's how you're going to be. There's there's room for like subtlety and change and, and issues that arise from uh, the packaging and not necessarily the code itself. And so the options that we could have down the road for um, helping to treat people with different cancers or helping to pe- treat people with uh, maybe even anxieties is really interesting just based on the fact that there's nothing wrong with the code. It's just not expressing properly. And so if we could just go in and say, oh, this is supposed to be on, but it's off and flick that switch, a lot of people could get a lot of benefit. And that's kind of why I love this topic so much. <laughs> it is. It's really cool. And it feels like there's, at least in the method that we're going about it currently, it, it seems less unethical. You're not changing anything you're not like you say you're not splicing things and taking stuff out you're not injecting anything it's just turning on or off what is already there right yeah we're we're trying to look at okay the engine's running but it's kind of rattling can we go in there and figure out what's making it rattle and and get it to go smoother we're not trying to like rip stuff out and change the whole parts and and make a whole brand new car you just want to make this because we work fine Mm -hmm. we're really i mean considering what a mess we are we do actually function pretty well and we do some amazing stuff i mean we've gone to space and the bottom of the ocean we've pretty Mm -hmm. much you know (laughs) done what we could do so the system works pretty well 
So if we can just find ways to just get stuff back on track, people are going to be able to be treated for a very broad range of issues without having to resort to uh, chemical therapies, which to some extent are almost always to some level toxic or right. will have some effects. And if you there's could a have- give and take and it's really medicine is about finding the right combination, in which the benefits are better than the side effects, right? Exactly. So let, let me, uh, so we're getting really close to the end. And I really want to ask you two questions. Uh, first question is, and you can give shorter, long answers. It's up to you. Do you consider aging, at least the negative aspects of aging, a problem we should solve through potentially epigenetics or at least genetic, uh, manipulation? It's possible. Uh, aging happens through a couple of different mechanisms. There's accumulations of cell damage. Um, There's the fact that, for example, skin can only replicate so many times before it dies and you only get so many layers of skin. Um, And so that's that's why as you get older, it starts to get less elastic. Um, The cells are aging. They're not as robust, because as cells age, they produce daughter cells that are the same age as them. They don't make new cells that are, you know, brand new, full of life. They are still older. They still carried over any of the DNA damage or uh, cellular issues. So that's one mechanism of aging. Um, Another is during DNA replication, they're Uh, are telomeres on the ends of your DNA, and those have something to do with aging because the way that DNA replicates when you need to do like a chromosome separation for new cells, there is a little bit on the end because of the way the mechanism works that would be lost. Mm -hmm. We just can't, we can't replicate all the way off the end. So and if I up. if I recall real quick, this the part of this thing on the end, uh, the longer that is, the more uh, reproductions essentially it can do. So potentially longer, specifically that cell has to live before it's too old and starts having these mistakes. Is that accurate? Is that the same thing? Yes, exactly. Okay. Exactly. So uh, you'll start to if, once the telomeric regions are gone, you'll start to lose actual genes. And so what happens in a normal scenario is when the cell starts to lose real useful genes, it just dies. So if Mm. you have long telomeres, as long as they're not getting a bunch of extraneous damage, um, the cell itself will live longer before it can't replicate anymore, the cell line. I remember watching a TED talk about that because they were talking about how if you found a way to extend that across the board, you could potentially have maybe not longer human life, but more uh, more healthy human life. And then they were talking, right. but you have to be careful because if you extend it too much, then you start getting tumor growths. Exactly. All right, cool. Yeah, I know stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so on a, I guess on a, a less technical aspect, do you personally see this as something we should do in an extent, uh, trying to extend human life? I personally, listen, it's an interesting question because mm-hmm. um, why, why, why live longer? You know, like I, I can see the appeal and want to individually live a longer life. Uh, but as far as because we evolved in a society where 
you only had, you know, maybe 60 years <laughs> later on, once we started, not early on, that would be insanely old, but later on when we started having language and more complicated social groups, you really didn't live a super long time. So the fact that we do have language and writing and we are able to teach and learn and pass on knowledge and information, um, which is what helped us advance. The idea of having a longer human life beyond the personal satisfaction of, I guess, getting to be really old um, mm -hmm. doesn't, it doesn't seem to me to be useful because unless we can also solve the issues that come with the degenerative um, parts of getting old, you know, you, you can't keep a brain young forever. It will get goopy, you know, mm -hmm. and that take longer, but there will be a point, even if you were arguing from the point of like uh, great scientific minds or, you know, really um, inspiring leaders or whatever, and you want them around as long as possible, there's still going to be a point where our brains sort of get pretty stuck in their ways and they stop being as flexible and adjustable to new scenarios. And so I feel like the human brain would not do well <laughs> getting older. So the benefit in that case to me kind of seems lost. You're just getting to be really old for longer than anybody else. It's just miserable longer. Diminishing returns essentially yeah. is what, yeah. yeah. Okay. So All right. I think that it's an avenue to explore because of the sort of peripheral possibilities of just learning more about disease and health. But as an end goal itself to extend human, I mean, because we already have people living to 100 years old, to extend human life just doesn't seem like a, a fruitful pursuit. At least in our biological forms, right? We can start putting ourselves into machines. That's a whole other oh, conversation. Yeah. But. <laughs> like bio-neural networks and AI, that's a completely different thing. But That's yeah, a whole no. other interesting show right there. <laughs> right, right. But no, for driving this meat suit, no, it doesn't need to live to be 120. Thank you. All right, last question. And I, I apologize because uh, I'm going to ask for a quick answer, but it's really not a quick answer. So <laughs> you can do what you want with it. Uh, as be, has been in the news this last year, uh, the twins, the twins that the uh, that they edited to be resistant to, uh, was it AIDS? Yes, HIV. HIV, yeah. So uh, what's your thought process on all of that like on one side people are coming down oh well you know you have to take risk if you're going to make gain right but on the other side there's there's so much going on that wasn't understood with the things that were manipulated in those assuming it, they actually were uh that uh isn't quite understood like i've read stuff that's come out afterwards that's saying oh you know they might be better learners because of it or whatever you know what i'm saying so what is kind of your thought process on all of that Obviously, you have to say it's unethical. I understand that, but <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, and it's it's really unethical in just the most in the most basic way is that uh, an unformed, um, you know, a, a fetus that is unable to communicate in English cannot give informed consent to be experimented on, which is what we require uh -huh. um, in in several countries. So that you know, from that standpoint ethically it just fails a pretty basic test whether you want to get into the more complicated scope of you know the greater good and and all that is a, is a different story 
As far as the risk of there being peripheral effects, especially, um, you know, with using things like CRISPR because we don't, it's, it's very new. Um, mm -hmm. So there's just really a lot that we can't say for sure, because I mean, you know, in science, like there's very little that you're allowed to say for sure. Right. Um, there's high probabilities and there's likelihoods, but uh, you can't make definitive statements until you're ready to die on that hill. Right. So <laughs> <laughs> with CRISPR, because it's so new, we're not really sure what its capabilities are or what its limitations are. And because we also still don't completely comprehend um, the dynamic intricacies of DNA, there could be peripheral effects. Uh, you know, it could be that you wanted to make them resistant to HIV and you did, but, it, you know, you, you made them better learners or maybe they'll go blind at 13. You know, there's there's no you, you can predict to a certain extent and you can do a lot of due diligence to look at how other genes function. But it's so complicated that right. for a really long time and possibly always there's going to be a risk of some degree of a secondary effect that was not anticipated. It's not a guarantee, but there's always going to be a risk. And that'd be really crappy in that position too, especially like in your example, say they go blind, eh, but at least you're, you're more resistant to this disease that you probably weren't ever going to get. And if you did, we totally have treatments for that make them way better now. You know what I mean? Exactly. <laughs> like... exactly. Yes. So that's kind of the issue with it is that not like I said, not only can the subject not consent to the procedure, but the effects, you know, they'll be they'll be studied their whole lives, but the effects mm -hmm. are completely unknown. It's it's all just data accumulation at this point. And, and that alone is a bit of of ethical issue there. You're right. They will be studied all of their lives and they didn't ask for that. I mean, I guess they could run away and go hide, but they have to run away and go hide, right? Like right which they shouldn't have to do. They should mm -hmm. be able to just exist. Mm. Well, there's, there's a lot of issues mm -hmm. with, with stuff like that. It's worth talking about, it's worth exploring, and it's important, but it is a very thorny subject. Yeah, I 100% agree. All right, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, and say we're done here. I'm not going to make you stay any longer. We're already a little over time. But is there if there's anything, if you have any internet presence, Twitter, or whatever you want to shout out, if there's any information sources that you really like on this subject that you want to put out there that people should go read or anything like that uh go ahead um honestly i really just find uh youtube to be a really cool place to find science videos so if you're interested in epigenetics go on youtube search up in epigenetics and find you know like a, a documentary by nature or whatever they're old at this point so they're definitely are going to be out there and just go listen because they are much better storytellers and they have all the visual effects and just go learn about a, a cool new thing that grabbed your interest take 10 minutes go check it out it's how you learn what you love and like i said the video that i saw in my genetics class was what just really sealed it for me like i this is what i'm going to do this stuff is so cool I can spend my whole life learning about it and have no idea what I'm talking about. So, you know, if any of this was, you know, for anybody was like, hey, that's really neat. I want to learn more about it. Like, go, go do it. 
definitely go do it. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking. I enjoy having you on. Like I said, this is one of those areas that just it's far enough away from my field that I never really picked up any of it. So I just love having you on because of all the things that I learned. So, so thank you so much again. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Bye. A Dash of Science was written and produced by 5 Hertz Labs. Music is by Ghost Tube Music. A Dash of Science is a proud member of the Podfix Network. This was a podcast from the Podfix Network. You can check out more shows like it at podfixnetwork.com.